0: Thank you, Mark, and thank you for inviting me to contribute to the series. You mentioned steam engines when you spoke to me. You didn't mention mining. Shame. <laughs> now, in a series of lectures on societies in transition, I face an immediate problem of being one of only two speakers on the post-Roman world and being faced with an immense chronological gap um, since the last speaker, Dr. Wall Perkins, who looked at the end of Roman civilization. Perhaps it is perceived that the social transformation brought about by industrialisation was indeed the major social change in that time span of over a millennium. Some writers have compared the social the, the social and economic significance of that. Um, of, well, they've compared the social and economic significance of the Neolithic revolution in farming, which was the subject of Graham Barker's lecture early in this series, with the Industrial Revolution of the 18th century. Carlo Cipola, a very prolific writer on European economic history, argued in 1962 that mankind's economic history can be written largely in terms of two revolutions which fundamentally altered the economic and demographic levels of human endeavour. And I quote, these were first the agricultural revolution of the 8th century millennium BC, which by 1500 to 2000, his dates, had converted man from hunter-gatherer to farmer, and secondly, the Industrial Revolution beginning in the 18th century. And I quote again, the first revolution transformed hunters and food gatherers into farmers and shepherds. The second one transformed farmers and shepherds into operators of mechanical slaves fed with inanimate energy. (laughs) Difficult to say that. I would question that latter assumption, I think, as do many people. But, I mean, was he right in suggesting that these are the two great revolutions in the past? And it's my task, really, to look at the second one and see how far that measures up to the Neolithic revolution in farming. And, of course, I know Graham Barker's work very well, having worked with him for many years. Industrialization is a vast topic which has generated a very considerable literature. And I have to confine myself to only a few aspects of this, And I also really need to confine myself to Britain and Europe with some mention of America and not with the rest of the world. I really want to deal with four major questions. Firstly, can we still talk about the concept of an industrial revolution or are we looking at a gradual evolution towards industrial society in the final centuries of the second millennium? Is there a great social transformation as a result of industrialisation, or is there continuity with some aspects of the past? Is it a British-inspired process? And lastly, obviously, what has archaeology contributed to our understanding of its causes and effects? Now, these questions overlap, so I'm not dealing with them in specific order, and particularly, of course, the, the last, the archaeological aspect, comes into all of them. Firstly, what do we mean by industrial transformation? Industrial archaeology, my own subject, has traditionally concerned itself with the 18th and 19th centuries, but technological innovation has undoubtedly occurred in varying degrees throughout human history. Of the many of us who've written about industrial archaeology in the second half of the 20th century, only Arthur Raystrick firmly stated that the discipline should not confine itself to the 18th and 19th century, and I quote, because industry has an evolutionary history which progresses step by step, With the evolution of societies and civilizations and he included chapters on prehistoric roman dark age and medieval industries in his book now none of us would disagree with the antiquity of industrial activity few would still go along with that famous statement by charles beard in 1901 that england in the first part of the 18th century was virtually a medieval england quiet primeval and undisturbed by the roar of trade and commerce Suddenly, almost like a thunderbolt from a clear sky, was ushered in the storm and stress of the Industrial Revolution. It's a wonderful statement. But I mean, what we have to ask is whether, and if so, why, this storm and stress of the 18th century resulted in the social and economic transformation more fundamental than any that resulted from the earlier bursts of technological innovation, which I'll now consider briefly. Now, given my limited time, I'll leave behind the Roman period, when technical advances such as the geared water wheel reached as far as the boundaries of empire, although I'm very keen on the Roman period myself. The next real candidate for a period of industrial transformation in Britain is the 13th century. In 1941, Eleanorus Keris Wilson published an article entitled The Industrial Revolution of the 13th Century, in which she showed from documentary evidence the large numbers of water-powered footing mills built in England before 1200, but more significantly from the point of view of social transformation, argued that this technological innovation played a large part in the decline of the old established urban centres of the woolen industry in the east of the country, as fulling fulling mills on rivers in the west were better suited to water power provision, and they drew the other processes of woolen manufacture with them. This is the River Froome, mostly in Wiltshire, And the map indicates the the very large numbers of mills. I mean, rivers were tortured, really, to to produce water power. And there were very large numbers of fulling mills on this particular river. And the other slide is a a 16th century engraving of water-powered fulling stocks. Kairos Wilson's deduction has since been criticised by Edward Miller and Richard Holt, among others, since factors like the desire of clothiers to escape from the restrictions of the urban based guilds have, be t- have to be taken into account. But nevertheless, fulling mills did become the focus for later preparation and finishing processes, as well, e- as well as many integrated textile mills, as Peter Nevison and I demonstrated in the book on Southwest Textiles to which Mark referred earlier. Jean Guimpel too, stressed the importance of the industrial application of water power in his book, The Medieval Machine, which is subtitled The Industrial Revolution of the Middle Ages. And he stated enthusiastically in that book that water mills were the factories of the Middle Ages. And I quote, A citizen could stand on a bridge over a river or canal and observe the different types of water mill, mills built along the banks, others floating midstream, or moored to the banks, and if he cared to look under the bridge, he might find the same machines built beneath the arches. You can see there the floating mill, and the, the painting is the River Adige in northern Italy, with these floating mills still there in the, in the 17th century. And of course the, the mills under the bridges were something that happened on the Thames in England as well. But despite the undoubted importance of these technological innovations, they didn't have a major economic impact. As Richard Holt has said, industrial production was limited because this was an impoverished society in which practically all the population directed most of their efforts to obtaining sufficient bread. As in the Roman period, further mechanisation was technically possible, but it couldn't be further exploited until the economic context including factors such as expanding domestic and overseas markets and capitalist enterprise, was right for large-scale production. These preconditions for industrialization became more of a reality in early 16th century Europe. It's possible to argue that capitalism was born in the period when Europeans were adjusting both to the massive demographic decline resulting from bubonic plague and the new ideas of individualism embodied in Protestantism, There were many opportunities in late 15th and early 16th century European society for men with drive and initiative to break free from the traditional feudal bonds of obligation to those above and below and often pursue a ruthless path to success. Many landowners in Britain, particularly as a result of the fluid land market created by the dissolution of the monasteries, pursued the path of agrarian capitalism, commodifying their estates by maximising surpluses for a growing market Sometimes of a single animal or crop, like grain or wool. The role of landowners in providing capital for industrial enterprises is often neglected. The bruk, BRUK, system in the Swedish iron industry is a good example. The iron furnaces often form part of a rural estate that was organised in a paternalistic manner. The Bruks patroner providing housing and social services. And in France, too, many of the charcoal iron furnaces there, this is savignac les in just south of the Dordogne, but you can see how the furnace itself, which I regret is not terribly clear there, but the furnace is there, and you can see the chateau dominating the landscape. And there's, there's a lot of evidence of the relationship, really, between the chateau and the, the iron furnace in Europe, as well, of course, as in Britain. In Britain, landowners managed to defeat the Crown's attempts to establish monopolies on various non ferrous minerals, as was often the case in Europe, and by the second half of the 17th century had established their right to exploit the resources below their estates as well as on the surface of their estates. And as I suggested earlier, rural industrial networks in the production of textiles was also well developed in the European countryside. by the 17th century, often as part of a dual economy, as discussed by Frederick Mendels in his work on proto-industrialization, a much criticized but nevertheless useful concept to historical and industrial archeologists as well as to historians. Added to all this was the creation of new overseas markets as a result of exploration and the beginnings of an Atlantic economy with the colonization of both Ireland and North America. It's not surprising then that the period saw remarkable development both in the scale of industrial enterprise and in technological innovation. Now interestingly many of the new techniques were introduced into Britain from continental Europe, particularly in mining and metallurgy, which were far better developed in Europe in this period, continental Europe as can be seen in this. This is the World Heritage Site of Røros in Norway and You you can see there, I mean, exploited by a Swedish company, but you can see there the the, the company town with its magnificent Lutheran church in the centre and these workers' housing rapidly disappearing under the, the slag heaps. I haven't been back for about 15 years, so whether it's changed since then, I don't know, but I was rather getting worried about some of the housing there. It was in fact German miners who helped to stimulate Britain's cotton industry, sorry, Britain's copper industry, despite, um, you know, which was obviously vital for ordnance at the time, and the iron industry took a further step forward with the introduction of the charcoal iron blast furnace. This was brought over from Belgium in the late 15th century, but in reality added a further sophistication to the already well established water powered bloomery iron furnaces, whose Um, Development has been charted by David Crossley in the University of Sheffield. That's a rather old picture of David with his rather flooded site of Pippingford in the Wealds and then the site he excavated at Rockley in Yorkshire with a cannon casting pit, which is what they're just working on in in the front of that. David Crossley has also shown how Flemish immigrants improved glass manufacture in England by the use of new types of furnace. Landowners began to develop industrial empires like the Lowther family of Cumbria who from the 1660s undertook a sustained and massive programme of industrial development centred on coal mining and the development of the town and harbour of Whitehaven as you can see here in its heritage guise, um, rather tidier than it used to be. Similar large-scale enterprises in non-ferrous mining were financed by the Dukes of Devonshire, the Yorkshire Dales, among others, and the Godolphin family in West Cornwall. This is one of the few surviving mine owners' houses from that period, Godolphin House, which has recently been taken over by the National Trust, who also own the the mining landscape of the area. As long ago as 1934, the economic historian J.U. Neff suggested that the pace of change in industrial activity between 1540 and 1640 was only achieved again in the second half of the 18th century. David Cranston, an archaeologist working in North East England, has more recently postulated a distinction between an extractive industrial revolution, which predated an 18th century manufacturing industrial revolution. And I think that's an interesting concept. A further archaeological contribution to this debate has been made by Michael Novell and John Walker of the University of Manchester Archaeological Unit who developed for the Tameside area around Manchester a methodology which linked the emergence of new site types between 1600 and 1900, particularly industrial ones, with the contemporary social structure. This has shown that distinct social groups, in this case landlords, freeholders and tenants, I quote, cannot only be detected in the archaeological record, but have also shaped that record to some extent by the pursuit of their own distinctive strategies to seize the opportunities presented by growth. They've acknowledged that the methodology they devised may not necessarily work in places where the social groupings are less distinct, but I think they've created another base from which archaeology can make a distinctive contribution to the debate on the industrial transition from as early as 1600. So are we looking at an evolutionary process of industrialization rather than the sudden change in the late 18th century, which was first defined as an industrial revolution by French and German observers in the early 19th century before it was popularized by Arnold Toynbee here in Oxford in the 1880s? Some economic historians would argue that this was the case, and the work of archaeologists has certainly demonstrated the extent of technological innovation well before the 18th century. But technological innovation, as we've seen from what happened in the 13th century, does not necessarily lead to such massive social and economic change as to deserve the title of revolution. It's generally agreed that what's important to economic growth is an increase in output per capita, which implies a growth in human efficiency. The available statistics for economic output in the 18th and 19th centuries have been analyzed and reanalyzed exhaustively by economic historians such as Dean and Cole, and more recently by Crafts and Harley. But the resulting estimates of aggregate economic performance are still controversial and are always likely to be so because of the imperfect nature of the evidence. However, even Crafts and Harley who've demonstrated that productivity only increased very slowly before the 1830s, have reaffirmed their belief, and I quote, in the importance of the Industrial Revolution as a historical discontinuity, although they don't specify exactly at what time that began. Many foreign observers certainly thought something was happening towards the end of the 18th century in Britain. Industrial espionage was rife from early in that century, as John Harris showed in his study of industrial espionage and technological transfer in 1998 when he concentrated on relations between England and France. Most of these visitors were convinced that the essence of British industrialization lay in specific machines or in the development of particular sectors, especially iron and engineering. The Swedish were anxious about the progress Britain was making in the production of bar iron which had been one of the major imports into Britain from Sweden, because our primary iron industry was held back, of course, because of the shortage of charcoal for smelting following deforestation. The visit of Reinhold Rucker Angerstein from the Jönkontor, the Swedish Iron Masters Association, was undertaken between 1753 and 1755, when Britain's still very much in a state of transition, with some exciting technological developments but also the continuity of craft and domestic production, which he observed and commented on as meticulously as he did the blast furnaces of the iron industry. It's instructive to compare his diary with that of Erik Svedensdiener, I don't speak Swedish, so that may be the wrong pronunciation, also from the Jernkontor, who came between 1802 and three, and so he was able to see and assess the competition for many more te- technological innovations, like Court's puddling process for converting pig iron from the blast furnace into wrought iron. You can see here um, a drawing from Angerstein's diary of a charcoal iron furnace in, uh, just to the north of Sheffield in Chapeltown, which is very similar to many of those I've seen in Sweden. So how far he just drew what he thought they ought to look like from his Swedish um, knowledge, I don't know. The quartz puddling process, you can see there, it enabled cast iron to be turned directly into wrought iron without having to to solidify and and then be uh, forged in the process. So it was a very important and I think very underestimated development. And it was clearly more important as a, a rival to the Swedish than the... Discovery in 1709, the beginnings of it anyway, by Abraham Darby I of charcoal of coal uh, smelting iron by coke. That's a, a very old slide of the original blast furnace, which of course was rebuilt in 1777 for the casting of the iron bridge um, in, in, in Colbertdale. The, it took over half a century to perfect the technique of coke smelting for iron. And the Swedes, of course, were not short of charcoal. And they, charcoal produced still a much purer iron than that emanated from the coke smelting process, but they were worried about the puddling process. Now, I think that brings me to a brief consideration of the so-called wave of gadgets in the second half of the 18th century. <coughs> that phrase was used by T.S. Ashton a long time ago, which he took from a schoolboy's essay. Joel Mockier has argued that the difference between the Industrial Revolution and previous clusters of technological change, as he calls them, which is a somewhat more sophisticated phrase than Ashton's schoolboy, was in the extent to which innovation influenced each other. Often there was a complementarity effect. The successful solution of one problem almost invariably suggested the next step and so led to what Machia calls chains of creation. This is particularly true, of course, in the textile industry in the 18th century, but it applied to other innovations as well. And I just want to look briefly at their significance in the process of industrial transformation. I don't have time to deal with all of them, but I just want to concentrate on two, the steam engine, because that's what Professor Pollard mentioned to me when he asked me to give this lecture, and innovations in textile production. In 1712, Thomas Newcomen, perfected the atmospheric engine which usually bears his name which was mainly used for pumping water from depth in mines you can see there the engraving of the engine and then the the other one is the reconstruction of the original one at Dudley the first one was put up at Dudley in the West Midlands so it was on a coal field which is fine because the problem with the Newcomen engine is that it's extremely inefficient and it uses vast quantities of coal It was, of course, important as the first time that steam power had really been harnessed for industrial purposes. So its inefficiency wasn't a problem on coal fields, but it was in the tin mining districts of Cornwall where they badly needed the steam engine because of the lack of good water power sites in the county and the increasing depth at which the tin ore was being found. There were no coal supplies, of course, nearer than South Wales. But the Newcomen Engine could only improve the context of the work by enabling the men to dig deeper. It didn't affect the process of work itself. And the extent and misery of human labor underground was exposed graphically as you can see here in the Children's Employment Commission of 1842, which is a century and a half after Newcomen invented his engine. So the actual process of work underground didn't change. With pumping with a Newcomen steam engine, they could just exploit more ground. And I think there's a big difference between technological innovation that improves the context of work and technological innovation that improves the process of work, as I'll come back to. The Newcomen engine could only perform reciprocating actions. It could only pump up and down. Only when James Watt improved Newcomen's engine by, among other devices, the use of the sun and planet gear that you can see there and eventually the crank. The the crank had been invented or patented anyway by James Pickard and he had a patent on the crank and it was only when the patent expired in 1794 that Watt was able to cease using the slightly more cumbersome sun and planet gear and go on to using the crank. Now once that is done, then the motion of the steam engine could be applied to the work itself by the use of rotary motion to drive the actual machines and it's that that improved human productivity per capita. It led therefore to a growth in human efficiency. Now enthusiasts such as George Watkins whose um, collection of photographs is in the National Monuments Record in Swindon and Colin Bowden who I hope will deposit his collection of photographs in the National Monuments record, have meticulously recorded steam engines which survived into the late 20th century. And you can see a couple of them here from the George Watkins collection in Swindon. This compelling interest by industrial archaeologists in steam power has, I think, led to a misconception about the importance of steam to industrial development in the late 18th century. The gains that the steam engine provided relative to water power were really relatively small before the 1830s. In Gloucestershire, for example, the woollen industry still obtained over two-thirds of its power from water as late as 1838. And I would go so far as to argue that water power rather than steam power was the driver for the classic Industrial Revolution of 1760 to 1830. But I have to temper this by the recognition that industrialisation is very much a regional phenomenon in Britain and some areas with ready coal supplies, particularly Lancashire, made much greater use of steam power earlier. But it mustn't be forgotten that coal had to be paid for. Water was free apart from the vast amount of earthworks you had to undertake in order to utilise that water efficiently um, in, in in, in a water wheel of this sort as you can see there. Once steam power became more universal, of course, it revolutionized the location of industry. It freed ironworks and textile mills from the need to be sited alongside streams with good heads of water. You can see here Duddon Furnace in Cumbria on the left, and you can, well, you can see all the woodland at the back, which was the the purpose of it there, because it provided charcoal. But that's the wheel pit that worked the water wheel that then drove the bellows on the bellows platform there. On the right is the furnace in South Wales at Oven, which became a World Heritage Site in 2004, which is on a coalfield, and so was able to make use of bellows powered by steam. So it it, it freed industry from the locational restraint of water power once steam power became more universal. And I think the steam engine, combined with transport improvements brought about by canals and later railways, enabled mechanical power to be utilised either at the source of raw materials, as in the case of the extractive industries, or where human resources were concentrated, leading to the massive growth of industrial towns, which so horrified many observers from the continent so i think steam power made a huge contribution to the extensive social transformation but later rather than earlier in what one might call the long durée of industrialization now the textile inventions which are the staple of school textbooks on the industrial revolution perhaps contributed even more to the increase of productivity per capita and they certainly demonstrate Mockier's concept of complementarity. Hargreaves' spinning jenny of 1764, Arkwright's water frame of 1769, and then James Crompton putting the two together in the spinning mule of 1775 speeded up the spinning process to such an extent that efforts had to be made to mechanise the handloom, a much more difficult process which was only partially achieved by Edmund Cartwright in 1785. And I should say that most of these inventions to start with were applied to the cotton industry, the fledgling cotton industry, rather than the woolen industry. The Jacquard loom, a French development in 1803, and then later the British invention of the Dobby loom, enabled more complex patterns to be woven. But it is not until the 1840s that the power loom became more important to the weaving of cloth than the hand loom. Arkwright's water frame and his carding engine, used in the preparation of the fibres required, they both require water power to drive them. And so late 18th century entrepreneurs sought waterside locations for their mills. And you can just see three of them here Cold Harbour Mill in Devon, at Uthcombe, this one is the, the Colonia Sedo in Catalonia where there are large numbers of water-powered textile mills with the, res- with the social housing around them. And then lastly, a Masson mill in Derbyshire, one of, one of Arkwright's mills on, on the River Derwent. It was these machines, I think, which revolutionised the process of work. They improved human efficiency. They didn't just... Um, increase the amount of work that could be done in traditional ways. And I mean, if you look at this, this is the reconstructed wooden gearing and reconstructed water frames in the German equivalent of Cromford in Derbyshire at Rattingen, where they used an English clockmaker to replicate um, these machines. But if you, you look at this, you can see the, the water wheel down here and then the gearing and the driving there. And so... You can obviously see the increase in output per capita because it took a woman usually. They've got many more spindles at once, whereas obviously when she's doing it in the home, she's only got one spindle. So it's the great increase upwards from the, the spinning jenny. But it's this above all that I think increases human efficiency and is the application of mechanisation to the process of work itself. Now the adoption of these machines further separated home from workplace but also affected social relations within it. The new machines were easily worked by the less well-muscled but dexterous women and children. Um, One of the biggest jobs that women had to do was piecing the threads as they broke. That's why you usually see women standing there twisting the threads around. And the children at the bottom there are sorting the cotton once it, it came over well, from Egypt and so on to start with, and then later, of course, from, from North America. The need for, but the need for good water power sites forced the entrepreneurs to attract their workforce to remote valleys in often hilly areas, rather than locating their mills in well populated urban spaces. Many made use of the labor of pauper apprentices, taking children from the urban workhouses and placing them in dormitories from which they only emerged to labour in the mills. The apprentice house at style in Cheshire is is still preserved, and it's it's a great heritage site for children, practising, being pauper apprentices, sort of. But, and I stress this again, families played a major role still in providing a workforce, and the saving grace for many of the males, of whom only a few were needed in these new mills, was the long survival of handloom weaving. Consequently, mill villages and even towns in the late 18th century remain mixed bases of factories, workshops and housing incorporating separate workshops. This is a 1960s over aerial shot of Belper in Derbyshire on the River Derwent. The large mill there, as you can see from the chimney, is a steam powered mill that was erected in 1912. But these are the Jedediah Strutt's mills, many of which have sadly now gone. So it was quite nice to find this, this aerial shot. But you can see how the mills are concentrated there. And then the housing comes up the street here. And the long row in Belper, this one here, that provides the housing. And at style in Cheshire, similarly. So movement within these sorts of spaces consisted of the early morning migrations, or late at night, also of women and children out of the domestic sphere while many of the men remained within the domestic sphere because it can be, the, that continued to serve as their workplace and you can see north street in cromford here which is just one example of many where the workshops remained above the housing and handloom weaving continued there while their families were at work in the mills so it's an interesting juxtaposition of labor at that period These new inventions, though, wouldn't have had the same impact had it not been for a group of energetic entrepreneurs who saw their potential and were in a position to raise capital for their exploitation. Among these was Desire Wedgwood, whose factory in Etruria, completed in 1769, was designed to enable ceramics in different stages of the process to be moved on in a logical manner. He also used different workmen in each area, making practical use of the principle of the division of labour, which was then advocated in print by Adam Smith in his Wealth of Nations in 1776. The ubiquity of Wedgwood's creamware and pearlware on excavations in Britain, America and Europe testify to the success of what he achieved in Etruria. The bottom two illustrations are some of the... um, Creamware that was excavated in Colonial Williamsburg when I was there a couple of years ago. Other material objects found on post-medieval excavations are the small metalwares, known as toys, inlaid buckles, buttons, snuff boxes and candelabra and so on, for which the Soho Manufactory was renowned. This was built on the outskirts of Birmingham ten years before Etruria, by Matthew Bolton, the patent of James Watt. Three stories high, with workshops, showrooms, offices, as well as accommodation for its workers, it was, like Etruria, an icon of capitalist enterprise. Both entrepreneurs built their private residences close to their manufactories to maintain surveillance over the premises, while at the same time separating their own domestic and working life. The style chosen for both manufactory and house was Georgian, And one might argue that Wedgwood and Bolton both believed that this universal style acted as a symbol of discipline to their potentially unruly workforce. This is a concept that's been developed at length in North America, particularly by Mark Leone, and in Britain by by Matthew Johnson. Equally, though, both of them welcomed visitors to Etruria and Soho from both home and abroad, and by these means helped in the diffusion of new ideas. Mokia has recently... Postulated the concept of an industrial enlightenment, arguing that industrial progress was driven not just by the appearance of new technological ideas, but also by improved access to these ideas through social networks. Peter Jones has very recently tested Machia's theory by means of a study of visitors to Soho in the second half of the 18th century, and agrees very much on the importance of the individual rather than the structure or the machinery in diffusing technological ideas. And I quote from Jones, the Soho Manufactory without Bolton, like Etruria without Wedgwood, was an imposing but empty red brick shell. But the sons of both of those two, Matthew Bolton and, and of James Watt, were not prepared to offer the same hospitality at Soho, especially once James Watt's patent on his improved steam engine ran out in 1800. Richard Arkwright, too, was careful to sell licenses for his patent on the water frame until it expired in 1785. And Patrick Cahoon calculated in 1788 that 200 mills had then been built on Arkwright principles. These are just some of those uh, remaining in in Derbyshire, except for that that one which is in Staffordshire. And these have all been um, carefully recorded by the, the, they were recorded by the Royal Commission and then by English Heritage. The sheer scale of these buildings, like Etruria and Soho, obviously excited the attention of domestic and foreign travellers alike, not always favourably. Viscount Torrington descried, decried Arkwright's great flaring mill, which had desecrated the natural beauty of the Asgarth Falls in North Yorkshire. But I think such structures gave a misleading impression Of the extent of factory development, which in reality was only utilised in a comparatively small number of industries before 1830. In 1995, English Heritage characterised the discipline of industrial archaeology as one that was concerned with, and I quote, the classic constituents of the Industrial Revolution capital investment, organised labour, technological development, and the factory scale of production. Gillian Darley in her book called Factory, has intriguingly described the factory, or factories, as inscrutable envelopes of human activity. It's a very good phrase. What went on inside them, of course, was generally unknown to those outside, unlike domestic industry with which most people were familiar. Uh, This is the great loom shop in Queen Street Mill in Burnley, which has been preserved. And you you get some impression of the the scale of the interior of a late 18th, early 19th century factory. Industrial archaeologists have begun to try to understand the dynamics of such internal factory spaces. Ian Meller in York made use of the techniques of spatial analysis to try to understand the ways in which the physical shape of textile mills impacted on the social dimensions of production and the structuring of labour relations. His work along with that of others, suggests that men still occupied supervisory roles within the factory, as they'd always done in the home, and that skilled men were not entirely driven out of factory employment, as is often suggested. Another myth has been exploded by my research student Ian West in his work on the impact of gaslighting in early factories, particularly to see how far such technological innovation affected patterns of work It's always been believed that with the introduction of gas lighting meant that manufacturers could therefore increase shift work and keep their workers employed both day and night. Ian's work has certainly shown that in fact night work did not increase when better lighting became available because it just wasn't economic, it wasn't efficient. And he suggested that other culturally based assumptions about the impact of lighting on industrialising societies also need to be re-examined. But the concept of the factory scale of production doesn't necessarily mean That all processes had to take place within large purpose-built structures from at least the 16th century the clothiers of wiltshire and gloucestershire and elsewhere have been organizing the whole process of cloth manufacture by making the use of workers in their own homes for spinning and weaving together with water-powered mills for fulling the finishing process and also for other preparation processes some accommodated part of their workforce in workshops either within or attached to their own homes for purposes of control and surveillance this is courtfield house in trowbridge in wiltshire refronted in the mid 18th century but it's got obvious evidence there of the top floor workshops to the rear of more elegant living quarters where some of the work was carried out by his his workforce this was equally true in many parts of europe michael mende has stressed how the, in the Eisfeld region of Germany and I quote the 18th century woollen or woollen wisted manufacture was centred on the owner's residence, it was the heart of the business enabling the owner to keep visual control over both the stages of manufacture and the quality of the products this is a remarkable building uh, in Monschau in Germany of um, a, a clothier's house and you can see the two, the two doorways there That's his own entrance and that's the entrance for the workforce who go in that way and into a water-powered factory at the side and these are the weavers' houses um, at the back of the mill. And in Britain too, the clothier's house often remained as part of the textile complex, uh, as you can see here in two examples in, in Gloucestershire. Even when new mills were built, the clothier's house remains as part of that complex. Many late 18th century British textile factories were constructed alongside early footing mills and concentrated on spinning, with the weaving still being carried out in the domestic environment. It has been argued that until spinning machines could be worked at speed, which is not really until the 1830s, the factory system didn't possess great advantages over cottage industry, and certainly the spinning jenny remained in use, which is hand-powered even if it was collected into workshops, it remained in use right through the 1820s. So economic historians, as well as industrial archaeologists, have recently then placed much more emphasis on new forms of industrial organisation in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, in which machine-based production in factories coexisted with the continuation of outwork in a variety of industries, including textile manufacture, the production of boots and shoes, and metalworking. You can see there, um, that's an illustration from Diderot's Encyclopedia of Framework Knitting, the, the knitting industry of the East Midlands. And I mean, that's another knitting frame, boot and shoe making, and the, the hand loom. The agents of change were the machines worked by water power, which I discussed earlier. These were adopted first by the fledgling cotton industry rather than the more intransigent woolen industry so it's a mixed development rather than full-scale factory development that characterizes the classic period of industrialization profitability and labor costs were important determinants for the construction of the new industrial premises and certainly in a variety of trades the entrepreneur was anxious to tie up as little as possible of his capital in bricks and mortar processes requiring mechanical power like cotton and woolen spinning, or needing close quality control, like cutting out leather um, for boots and shoes, require purpose-built structures. But he was prepared to allow, and in fact anxious to allow, many other processes—weaving cloth, stitching leather, knitting stockings, lasting boots, making nails and chains—to remain in a domestic environment. The the other two are silk weaving and. Um, this one is, is nail making in the West Midlands, where in the 1850s, nails were still being made in little workshops at the back of people's houses, even though you know the main primary iron was being produced in much larger complexes. These are framework knitters' houses in Nottinghamshire, and these are the famous caches, um, buildings in Coventry, where they tried to introduce steam powered looms into the silk mills in coventry the result were numerous strikes and so the entrepreneurs there compromised with their workforce by building these rows of houses or in fact triangles of houses with the weaving shops at the top and the housing at the bottom and providing steam power around the lot with a central steam engine so it's a wonderful example there of 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 compromise Many of the clothers of Gloucestershire stated to the commission set up in 1802 to investigate the troubles in the woolen industry that it wasn't worth their while building weaving shops to centralise the handloom weaving process. John Jones of Bradford-on-Avon said he would need a building 100 feet by 326 feet with four floors to house 100 broad looms, that it would just not be worth the expense at a cost of 2,000 to 3,000 pounds. Similar arguments were used by the hosiers at the time of the 1844 Parliamentary Inquiry into the condition of the framework knitters about the expense of building factories for knitting frames when they could get the work done in the knitters' houses. So the practical effects of these policies is seen in the large numbers of domestic workshops that were constructed in the first 30 years of the 19th century and beyond, not just for textile industries, but also for leather and small metal trades These are handler weavers' houses in West Yorkshire, which are constructed as part of farm complexes. It became an additional way um, for farmers to to make further rents. And the cotton weaving houses in Lancashire are rather different because cotton demands a damp environment for the, if not for the actual weaving process, for setting up the loom and sizing the warps and so on, and so Geoffrey Timmins discovered long ago that the, the workshops up in there are cellar workshops, and you can just see um, where the hand weaving took place below ground. These art workers <coughs> retained what was in reality an illusory independence. They might not control the actual product, but at least they could still control the rhythm and intensity of the process by which the product was manufactured, something that became impossible under the full factory system but they were by no means an undisciplined casual workforce. Their working lives were governed by the need to collect raw materials, work on them, and return their finished pieces to the clothier. But as their home was their workplace, this time discipline was mediated by the daily needs of their families, their neighbors, and their communities, something that became much more difficult to sustain within the highly urbanized industries of the north of England in the mid 19th century and beyond. <clears throat> so how far did the classic period of industrialization result in drastic social transformation an important point for many economic historians who have studied the problem is concerned with the transfer of human resources from agriculture to industry or to return to my earlier quotation from carlo cipolla that read the revolution that transformed farmers and shepherds into operators of mechanical slaves fed with inanimate energy I'm going to have to learn that one undoubtedly the profitability of british agriculture in the first half of the 18th century combined with a run of good harvest from the 1730s which kept agricultural prices low and boosted purchasing power was a factor in releasing labor at an early stage of the process of industrialization the concept of an agricultural revolution preceding an industrial revolution is still a matter of hot debate like the process of industrialization, many argue this took place earlier than the 18th century, and of course it also happened in the late 19th century. But it's clear that it's not until the 1840s and 50s that less than 50% of people in Britain were engaged in agriculture, and at that time the majority of women were employed in the service industries and not in manufacturing, despite the apparent ubiquity of factory work. So although I quote sorry, R.N. Hartwell, and now I quote, he believed that the pressure of industrial demand finally hit the ceiling of production possibilities in a number of strategic industries with the techniques of a pre-industrial revolution world in the 1780s. But others would argue that further productivity advance was held back by the dominance of relatively labour-intensive work until at least the 1830s, something that was possible because of the considerable population growth within the period and I would agree with that and the analogy of course is with the Far East now where so much industry has been transferred into a labour intensive environment. There was no shortage of labour in Britain unlike the USA in the early 19th century where a lack of population certainly prompted the use of as much mechanisation as possible So technological innovation did bring about a degree of transformation in Britain in the late 18th century which amounted to a historical discontinuity with what had gone before. But the process of social transformation was an ongoing one which isn't finally worked out until the second half of the 19th century. Even then, the workshop culture survived in many industries until well into the 20th century and its landscape can still be seen in, for example, Spitalfields and Clerkenwell in London, and the Jewellery Court in Birmingham, as you can see here. This is Evans' silver um, workshop, recently acquired by English Heritage, um, who are trying to preserve the immense contents of this. And you can see this photograph of the workforce in the mid-20th century. It only ceased work comparatively recently. So the workshop culture continues. Now finally, how far was industrialization, a British experience that then diffused to other parts of the world? The process of technology transfer was undoubtedly two-way in the early modern period, with continental expertise in mining, metallurgy, and manufacture of glass assisting the growth of British industry. Even in the 18th century, Thomas Lom copied Italian silk-throwing machinery to build what was really Britain's first major water-powered factory in 1718. And the continuous paper-making machine, eventually associated with the name of Fruginier, was first developed in France in the 1790s. But Britain is drawing ahead of Europe by the end of the century and of course it didn't experience the devastation of the french revolutionary and napoleonic wars to the same extent as continental europe germany and italy were politically disunited holland lacked the natural resources on which to build up new kinds of industries so from the 1780s much technological transfer was outward from britain steam engines found their way to mining sites in mexico in spain and so on And Arkwright's first mill was replicated as early as 1783 near Rattingen in Germany by Joseph Brueggemann, who named his new water-powered spinning mill Cromford, like its predecessor in Derbyshire, built himself a far more elegant house than Arkwright ever managed up in Cromford. He found it much more difficult, however, to replicate the pirated water frame that he tried to put in it. Britain was also, of course in a favorable position at the hub of an Atlantic economy and continued to supply the American colonies with many manufactured goods, even after the end of the wars of independence. And there are many archeologists working on that, including, of course, Dan Hicks here, um, work in in the Caribbean and in North America. This is just a Jamaican sugar crushing mill that I saw when I was teaching briefly there, which came from the Lowmore Armworks near Bradford. Even in 1784, Thomas Jefferson said, while we have land to labor, then let us never wish to see our citizens occupied at the workbench. For the general operations of manufacture, let our workshops remain in Europe. That's from his notes on Virginia. But merchant capitalists in Massachusetts and Rhode Island had other ideas, and they were happy to make use of the mechanical skills of the British emigrant Samuel Slater That's their title, Father of the American Revolution. He constructed working water frames on Arkwright's model in mills on the Blackstone River, Rhode Island, in the early 1790s. But Slater also took with him the use of family labour, which had been the practice in Belper from whence he came, where, as I showed you, Jedediah Strutt housed his workers in family groups. Slater and his sons maintained personal control of their organisation, and followed the early British model of working with heads of households to gain their labour force, as you can see from the form of his mill villages, which could easily be mill villages in England. It's not until the 1830s, in Waltham, Lowell, Lawrence, and similar textile towns in Massachusetts, that the corporation, a type of capitalism, Operating at a greater distance from the workforce, the mill owners like Artwright or Strutt or Slater himself, became the body responsible for providing shelter, sustenance, moral guidance and education. Their mater- the material expression of these actions was the boarding house for single girls from the countryside who worked the power looms in the mills, watched over in the domestic arena by matrons and in the work arena by the agents of the corporation. Um, You can see here the the mill, and then these are all the boarding houses associated with it, and that's one of the surviving boarding houses here um, in, in Lowell. Spatially, only a few yards separated factory, boarding house, and agent's house, all woven into an urban fabric bisected by canals which provided the power to the mills. And they provided a very different industrial scene from the unplanned sprawl of many British industrial towns and were deliberate expressions of corporate paternalism, which Stephen Morozovsky has suggested served to crystallize class distinctions, something I think that had been far less obvious in Arkwright's or Slater's villages. Britain, therefore, was the first to contend with the social problems of industrialization. The growing industrial towns had no adequate municipal government to ensure attention to the health and hygiene of workers before at least the 1830s. As Riello and O'Brien have said, the diaries, autobiographies and memoirs of overseas travellers, and I quote, abound with descriptions and comments on England's industrial development in the form of highly lyrical scenes, amazing industrial processes, nostalgic visions of nature and praise of modernity but also extremely critical views about the poverty, squalor, and disamenities of urban living. Most rejected the British model as a way for their own societies to progress and sought other ways to ensure their futures as industrial nations. The British Industrial Revolution, if we can call it that still, was carried out with the minimum of government interference, which permitted both untrammeled development and the exploitation of a large section of the population for the purposes of profit. The industrial landscape of Britain reflects this unplanned laissez-faire approach. There was, for example, no standardisation of the width of canal or railway networks until the mid-19th century. You can see there the the Huddersfield Narrow Canal up near Saddleworth, the Broad Canal, the Leeds and Liverpool Canal at Bingley Five Rires Locks, And the bottom two pictures are East Midland horse-drawn wagonways that were still hauling coal in Derbyshire. And this particular one is hauling coal up from the Grantham Canal to Beaver Castle in the late 19th century. So standardisation took a long time to come. There were no controls either on the provision of housing or the enforcement of basic municipal amenities. So British society moved slowly and painfully from an agrarian rural-based community to an urban manufacturing-based one. And the rest of the world, while adopting British technology, saw what aspects of industrialization to avoid if they could. Mokia once again has said, I quote, technological progress was a multinational collaborative effort in which Britain's advantage was both qualitative and ephemeral. Archaeologists, I think, have made a considerable contribution to this reinterpretation of industrialization by demonstrating from the remaining physical evidence, both the mixed spaces of early industrialization with houses, workshops, and small factories, of which you can see a selection there, and the crowded urban fabric associated with 19th century industrialization unfortunately well unfortunately or fortunate depending on your viewpoint um, this is a scene in lancashire at shore which no longer exists as you can well imagine but you can see the lodges providing water for the steam engines the chimneys and so on and this crowded factory development there um, this this factory here is in derby uh, and that one's in west yorkshire And I think as in earlier periods of history, the mundane tells the human story more effectively than the spectacular survivals from the past. And one of the problems with industrial archaeology, of course, has been that industrial heritage has inevitably concentrated on spectacular survivals, the first, the biggest, or whatever. I think the archaeological version of that is to look at the mundane and see what it can tell us about the processes of industrialization, which is why I spend my time scrabbling around workshops rather than large factories. Thank you.